If we could keep that psalm open, thank you very much. All of us then, no doubt, have things in our past that we regret. Wrong choices, wrong actions, wrong things done, wrong words said. But what if we find ourselves in a place where the choices we begin to regret are not the wrong ones, but the right ones? Moral choices. Choices that we've made that put God first in our lives. Our psalm describes an intense emotional journey by a man who has been in that place. Though the Bible in general is never afraid to be honest about human life and about us, about the human condition, the Psalms in particular have a knack of facing who we are head on in a very raw and emotional way. One minister said this, that the Psalms allow expressions of all human emotion, positive and negative, to be pathways from us to God. There's some very raw emotion being suffered in this psalm. So who is our man Asaph and how did he get to this place? There's a few Asaphs in the Old Testament, but our most likely candidate is the one who served under King David. His name means one who gathers together and appropriately enough, he is a worship leader. The book of First Chronicles tells us that he's called out from the Levite ranks and appointed to ministry in a time of great triumph. David has become king. He has entered Jerusalem. He's defeated both the Philistines and his own rivals in the house of Saul in a great military campaign that makes Game of Thrones look like the Teletubbies, as a lot of the Old Testament does. And now the Ark of God, once held by God's heathen enemies, is installed in triumph in God's city. And yet all of this doesn't stop him from having a bad case of spiritual burnout and disillusionment. We can't, of course, be certain of the time frame between the events I've just described and the writing of this psalm. And some rabbis speculate that Asaph lived into the reign of King Solomon and saw his backsliding and some of the things that Lucy told us about this morning, about the way Solomon moved his heart away from God. But whatever the time frame, there's a truth in this psalm that life will throw at us these times of questioning, these times of disillusionment, and written with a survivor's hindsight, our scripture today is unflinchingly honest about how it can shipwreck us. So how might Asaph have come to this place? How can we? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his very useful book, Spiritual Depression, Causes and Cure, um, outlines for us a few common factors. We can all be weary in well-doing. We can all wrestle with hidden sin. We can perhaps be insecure in our trust in God for the future. Or perhaps, as I wasn't when I was a Catholic, perhaps we haven't yet owned for ourselves the great truths of salvation. Perhaps yet we don't have that security of knowing that Christ is our saviour. But where is Asaph? Asaph's problem is that he's looking at those who aren't righteous, who pay no heed to God, and yet who seem to prosper. It seems to contradict everything he knows. He's aware, no doubt, of those great promises in the book of Deuteronomy about Uh, about blessing that accompanies righteousness and cursing that accompanies evil. And yet he's in a situation that seems to stand all his theology on its head. 
We see this today, don't we? In people who get away with crimes and wars or invasions, or perhaps people we know who ignore God and seem to be so happy living the way they choose to live and wondering why we have bothered to place around our lives um, Christian morality around our desires or choices to walk in honesty and integrity or choices that fit with where we feel God may be calling and taking us or where he might want us to serve even if it costs us materially or emotionally. It's very easy if we've done all that, if we've made those choices and felt some of the discomfort that life can then throw at us to ask what the point of it all really was. The message translation of this psalm expresses this very pointedly by asking, is God out to lunch? Where is he? Asaph's asking this question, and he's not the only one in the Bible to ask it. Ecclesiastes um, 8.11 says this, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. He is under resentment. And the impact of this kind of bitterness is widely recognised. In 2009, Psychology Today quoted the Los Angeles Times as saying that bitterness is so common and so deeply destructive that some psychologists are arguing for it to be identified as a form of mental illness under the name post-traumatic embitterment disorder. Try saying that in a hurry. Most mental disorders, it goes on to say, stem from or secondarily generate Anger, rage, hostility, bitterness, and nothing consumes a man more quickly, it it, um, concludes, than the emotion of resentment. So, Asaph's answer, our answer. It's not going to lie in an event, just a successful thing or happening. He's seen those. As verse 17 tells us, it's going to lie in God's sanctuary. It's going to come down to him as it does for us in the depth of his relationship with God. During the uh, 1940s and 1950s, in the height of the communist era, a Romanian pastor called Richard Vermbrand spent two lengthy periods of time in prison. Imprisoned in darkness, in a building that actually would one day become a church. He told horrendous stories of being beaten till there was no flesh left on the soles of his feet. Um, Guards that would creep around him in the darkness, completely clothed in black and in rubber-soled shoes, so he couldn't see or hear them. Deprived of human companionship, deprived of food and sleep, deprived of his Bible, deprived, seemingly, of everything. During this time, he wrote a book of meditations and sermons called Alone with God. Notice, not just alone with himself, alone with his captors, alone with God. And in one of the meditations in this book, he speaks of Mary Magdalene standing by the tomb of Christ. This woman, this disciple powerfully um, healed of demonic possession, given a powerful healing, a great act of mercy wrought in her life, but wondering what will happen now. Jesus Christ is dead. He's in the tomb. What if there's no resurrection? 
What if it's not going to happen? What if he's not coming out of there? What if all she's done, after all, is to place her trust in this vagrant preacher from the desert who got sunstroke and thought he was God? Placing himself in her position, he asks, When will Christ come to free me from my doubt? And alone in that impenetrable, unforgiving darkness, the answer he finds is this. I will know the Holy One better. He's going to allow communion with God to be his strength, his sustenance in this situation. Though trapped, he will be free inside. Now, to briefly consider a biblical example that goes alongside this a little, and in doing so, I want you to imagine something with me. I hope, none of, I hope this has not happened to any of you, but it does happen. Imagine you receive a poison pen letter or an email that really makes you feel worthless. Stop what you're doing. You're not going to achieve anything. Give up. You're good for nothing. In Second Kings, a righteous king called Hezekiah gets a letter like this from a king called Sennacherib who's going to attack him. And this letter says, God is not going to help you. You're fighting a war you are not going to win. Why send your soldiers to their deaths unnecessarily? Why rob families of husbands, of sons? Come out. Surrender to me. You get this over with quickly. And so will I. So what's he going to do? He's having the dilemma of his life. He's having perhaps a Neville Chamberlain moment. Do I fight? Do I seek appeasement? What am I going to do here? He does in the end the only thing that a man of God can do. He gets down on his knees and he prays. There's no instant deliverance. The war is still there. Because we know, don't we, that God can and sometimes will work an instant miracle in answer to prayer. But often, what changes is not the circumstances, but our ability to go through them. And Hezekiah gets up, and his difference is this. He knows that God's with him now, and he goes out to battle, and he routs the enemy. He smashed it, and a great victory is won. And so, out of all of this, the question for us is this. Do we pray because we're people who go to church and so it kind of goes with the territory? Or do we pray because Christ is our strength? The hinge point in this psalm is that Asaph is going to find his answers in the sanctuary of God. How? This has to be more than the physical sanctuary. Asaph is a man who serves in worship. He's regular in church. He probably, we assume, keeps the law as far as any human being could. So what's missing? What's the sanctuary that he's going to find here? The clue for us, maybe all the way back in verse 1, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Our man Asaph is going to realise something. He's going to realise that in allowing envy and bitterness to consume him, he has himself wandered from purity. 
Though seeing himself as one of the aggrieved, he's become part of the problem. And he's allowed into his soul the kind of feeling that drives the very people he's complaining about. So he's going to deal with this. And in doing so, he's going to regain his eternal perspective and he's going to be renewed by the presence of God in his life. So where might he and where might we gain help? Firstly, I want to ask, do we have relationship with Scripture? Obviously, our man Asaph wouldn't have had the whole Bible that we have. And so we have the great privilege of holding the whole revelation of God in our hands. And if you know any church history, you'll know people gave their lives so we can do that. And that's an awesome thing to behold. And we need to consider perhaps that while um, life's knocks can give us resilience and worldly wisdom and empathy, what they can't give us is authority over spiritual truth. They must in the end draw us back to God. And so, without being legalistic about beating yourself up if you don't read every day, is relationship with Scripture part of your life? Godly counsel. It matters who you speak to. In verse 15, we see that Asaph has enough sense of pastoral care not to speak to those whose faith he might wreck by venting his frustrations and doubts on them. But maybe he's been able to voice stuff to those who are older, wiser, stronger in the faith than him, as we can and we need to. Corporate worship and sacrament, these things can renew us. Who's enjoyed the times in the evening services lately when we've been in the spirit in prayer and worship? I've been greatly refreshed by these. Um, Communion, it's a great time of renewing um, a very sacred part of our worship that draws us to God. But most vital, because this in the end is sanctuary, personal prayer life, being honest with God about your struggles, asking him to draw you to himself and letting his peace be your decent healing, be your deepest healing, sorry. We are in the end only as good as this. Can our prayer be more than just dutiful petition? Can it be a time when we're vulnerable before God, when we confess our brokenness, take time to adore and know our Creator, our Saviour. Ask Him to draw us near to Him and allow Him to do so. One commentator says this For a great many of us, the only notion that we have of prayer is asking God to give us something that we want. But there is a far higher region of communion with that than that in which the soul seeks and finds and sits and gazes and aspiring possesses and possessing aspires. Where there's no spoken petition, but just the prayer of contemplation, such as the angels before God's throne glow with. The prayer of silent submission, in which the will bows itself before God. The prayer of quiet trust, in which we don't so much seek for things as cling to God that precedes supplication. This commentary goes on to say, and if we have such union with God, by realizing his presence, by aspiration after himself, by trusting and submitting to him, then we have the victorious antagonist of all our anxieties, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents, not the circumstances necessarily, but how they affect us, and silently steal away. 
For if a man has that union with God, which is affected by such prayer as I've been speaking about, it gives him a fixed point on which to rest amidst all troubles. It's like bringing a light into a chamber when thunder is growling outside, which prevents the flashing of the lightning from being seen. And it's surely this peace that Asaph feels as he concludes that it's good for him to draw near to God. As the message translation again puts it, I am in the presence of God and oh, how refreshing it is. There's a story that's told about Marie Curie, the scientist who achieved great things in her field. When asked though about the effect of radiation on her life, she says, nothing tastes of anything. What are we told that's a contrast to this? Taste and see that God is good. That's not just an injunction for those who don't know him. These are psalms, worship songs for God's people. They're to us. Will we keep tasting our God? Um, And Asaph did have this option. We know, obviously, that we stand on the other side of Pentecost from him. And so there wasn't that precious indwelling of the Spirit that's inside each of us. But we also know that the Holy Spirit did, was around in the Old Testament, um, inhabiting people um, for specific times and circumstances. John 14.7 says of the Spirit, But you know him, for he lives with you, present tense, and will be in you, future tense. So through this, I believe, Asaph has an encounter with God that gives him the revelation he needs. Hebrews 4.16 then bids us, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. His grace and strength are there for us in his sanctuary to strengthen us if only we let it. When I was a new Christian, the first time God ever spoke to me from the Bible was from this verse about being in his sanctuary. And there were real Holy Spirit goosebumps. And I knew I'd just been in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this, this scripture has been very precious to me ever since. Um, and so his grace and strength are there for us, if only we let it. As well as eternal salvation in the hereafter, this is the right in the here and now that Christ has won for us. Philippians 4, 6-8 gives us this threefold command. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Who's ever felt better after sharing their hearts with a trusted friend? I know I have, and who better than with God? This passage isn't calling us to some kind of psychosomatic affirmation that all's well when it clearly might not be, or crassly telling us not to feel the emotions that in some situations we're inevitably going to feel. What it is doing, though, is simply calling us beyond self-dependence, reminding us that our master who died and rose from the grave for us tells us to cast our cares on him. Asaph 
follows this principle. He brings himself back to what's right. He forsakes his doldrums and by the grace of God moves on and does the only thing you can do. He goes forwards. The philosopher Kierkegaard said this, life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards. The more one thinks through this, the more one concludes that life in temporality can never be properly understandable simply because never at any time does one get the perfect chance to take a stance backwards. Who sees this big picture but God? Therefore, our view of life must be determined by our relationship with him because where we stand will determine what we see. And so the people that Asaph's been moaning about are still there, but he's regained his eternal perspective. He knows their days are numbered, whereas when Christ takes his own from this world, what follows will be eternal and eternally, finally just. David Pawson, in quoting the poet Robert Browning, says this. As I write, he says, the words of Robert Browning came to me. There may be a heaven, but there must be a hell. This is the demand for a moral universe. If this life is all there is, then injustice reigns. But if there's a life beyond and it includes retribution for the evildoer, then it becomes possible to believe again that righteousness rules and that God is good. There's a bit of a focus there on hell and damnation and it's not to belittle the goodness of God that we see in this world and in our own lives. But there is a truth here and it's this, that the fact of eternal life takes this fallen sinful world with all its flaws, with all its failures and sets it back in an eternal context of reward, punishment, recognition justice and this I think is what verse 27 finally asks us to see evil will be judged ignorance of God willful ignoring of God will be judged and will be gone in the end home to our father home to his perfection and perhaps Asaph's learned too as both testaments make clear to us that God's apparent delay in avenging evil and indifference to him is to give people time to repent. Ezekiel 18.23 says this, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so then at the end of Asaph's journey, a new security, a new sense of purpose, a new sense that he's back on the right road. The wonderful phrase he concludes his psalm with, that God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. Not just a worship song or a platitude, but once again, the truth of who he is, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. And so... If tonight you can't yet own this, can't yet own this great gospel promise, you're not a Christian, could I leave you with this challenge that life, your life, was made to be lived not just in this day-to-day rat race of life, work, sleep, people, 
but that who you are, your soul, your consciousness, was handmade by the one who created everything and who wants you to have relationship with him. And if you can take nothing else from what I've said tonight, then hear me on this, that my Saviour promises you eternal life, eternal security, and that no promise on this earth is more worth owning. And for us who own this truth, who know that Christ is our Saviour, that our sins are forgiven, and that eternal life is ours, would we be reminded that the great worth that his shed blood, an eternal seal, puts on us, should forever be our dignity, our identity, our self-worth, our purpose, and our peace. That for all of us who own him, he is, as Asaph triumphantly concludes, the strength of my heart and my portion, my identity, my dignity, my inheritance. He's who I am now and forever. Amen.